Head to boingboing.net to discover more great podcasts and go to youarenotsosmart.com to learn more about books, merchandise, previous episodes, and all sorts of other you-are-not-so-smart-related stuff. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 20. You know, I haven't eaten in 50 years. Sure. There's a cafe there. This is a scene from the 1930 film Just Imagine about a man from the 1930s who wakes up in 1980 and is astounded to see how different the future is from his time. Well, what will you have? Table d'hôte or a la carte? Oh, I used to take the regular dinner. Okay. Here you are. Clam chowder, roast beef, beets, asparagus, pile of mold and coffee. How does that sound? Oh, that's fine. Okay. You know, I love roast Yeah. He's hungry, he's excited, but they hand him a pill instead of an actual meal, and it comes out of a machine and a wall. Well, how was it? The roast beef was a little bit tough. <laughs> so that's the way you eat now. I must admit that it satisfies me, but back in 1930, a meal was a meal. You could see the thick steak with the youth oozing out, and you could feel the cold cream going down. There was something to eating then. I don't know, boys. Give me the good old days. <laughs> he keeps saying that. Give me the good old days. They, they'll show him... Uh, how they drink in the future and of course they mention prohibition because prohibition is on everyone's mind in 1930 when the movie's made and a drink is a pill just like everything else and then he drinks it or eats it and he says give me the good old days and uh then they show him how babies are made wait a minute what's going on there we've been married a year now dear you think we can have fun i think so darling what do you want a boy or a girl a boy the husband walks over to another thing in the wall, like the food dispenser, presses the kind of baby he wants, and out of his chute pops a little baby boy. Our hero just can't take it, and he stands there astonished. Give me the good old days. <laughs> and they laugh, because he longs for the good old days, when sex it still involved pleasure before it became an automated push-button experience. And he's saying this because the movie was written in the 1930s when everyone was worried about what all this automated push-button craziness was going to lead to. And they wondered how that might change the way they led their day-to-day -day lives. Even before Rip Van Winkle, the idea of sleeping until you wake up far in the future has been around in our fiction once we had a, a grasp of the past and could compare ourselves to it, and once technology started making each generation's wonders seem quaint by comparison to the latest innovations, we've been imagining what it would be like in the future. How much will it change? How much will it not change? And if society itself will become better or worse? 
From 1984 to Brave New World to The Time Machine, we've been using science fiction to comment on the present by imagining the future to which it might lead. And even in comedy, we, we remake Just Imagine every generation. In 1973, Woody Allen made Sleeper about a man from the 1970s who wakes up deep in the future to find that the health fads of the 70s are gone and everyone now eats steak and cream. And there are robot butlers and sex has... Um, just like in Just Imagine, been replaced by a machine called the Orgasmatron. In 2006, Mike Judge made Idiocracy about a man from 2005 who wakes up in 2505 to learn that everyone has become really, really stupid. No one remembers how to make anything or how science, medicine, or technology works. Everyone is just a dumb consumer. And he, a man with an average intelligence in 2005, is now the world's smartest man. Of course, what's great about all these movies, what's most fun to me, is how wrong they all are. The futures that they imagine are really just freakishly twisted versions of the fears of the times in which they were made, or at least the fears of their creators. They're more about each film's present than any real future that may come. And that's not a surprising theme when you understand a psychological phenomenon called present bias. So different schools of thought, they're going to call this different things. They'll have different terms like hyperbolic discounting or time inconsistent preferences or dynamic time inconsistencies. But I like present bias because it's easier to understand, I think, if you look at it in, the ter in terms of bias and cognitive biases. And it comes, to, it comes down to this. Um, you are, as a human being, biased to see the person you are as the person you're going to be later on. Um, there's a similar bias called uh, consistency bias, where people tend to believe that the person they are now is the person they've always been. But uh, present bias is sort of in the other direction in that you believe that what you want right now and the decisions that you would make right now in situations that you can imagine in the future are going to be the same and that you will want what you want now later on down the line. And it could be in the same day. You might think that right now I want to exercise uh, when I get home and right now I want to go watch this movie after I exercise and right now I want to eat properly uh, and um, make good decisions about what I'm going to um, choose for dinner later on. But then when later on comes around, you're a different person because we are very much influenced by our settings and our environment and the conversations that we've had and the thoughts that are coming, going through our mind and how much glucose is in our buds, bloodstream and, um, what sort of emotional state we're experiencing and uh, whether or not we're tired and all those things come into play. And so you're a different person in the future. There's a present you and there's a future you and present you want certain things and will make certain decisions, but future you will make different decisions, but it's very difficult to see. And so because of present bias, we have a hard time realizing that the us of the future, the, the I, the me, the you of the future is a different person. And that's just in within the same day. When we look way into the future, like 5, 10, 15 years, we also tend to see ourselves as who we are now, but with better gadgets, better machines, more money, a different house, a different relationship. But what we don't seem to see over and over again is that who we are fundamentally may be different. We may want different things. Different things might make us happy. Things that make us happy now might not make us happy in the future. And if you look back on the past, it seems kind of evident that that's true. But 
even still, it's difficult. It's difficult to project who you, who you might be in the future. So we tend to just see us as who we are now with a better smartphone. And that's, I think that's kind of what's happening in this. Uh, when you look at people who have predicted the future so poorly is that I think that they are kind of doing it in a sort of broader present bias kind of way. I remember the, the first episode of Star Trek, the next generation has, uh, uh, the Iran Contra conflict is kind of mentioned in it as if that's something people deep in the future will still be talking about. But, but of course not. It was just what people were talking about when that show was made or in back to the future, they get, they, uh, uh back to the future too. When Marty goes to the eighties cafe, which of course we don't have eighties cafe. There's a couple here and there, but they made it seem like it would be just as common as fifties cafes were in the eighties. And in the eighties cafe, you have Ronald Reagan, uh, having an argument with Ayatollah Khomeini because that was something people were talking about at the time. And they, and they imagine that's what would be in some way an element of the future that people might still be talking about it. We were, people see the future as if it is the present magnified way better, way worse, but in some way similar when really what's amazing about the future is how our very minds have changed, how we don't even see things in any way whatsoever, the way we see them now, that the very culture is different, how the norms have, have changed. And this came to my mind recently when PBS recently did this, um, this new special, this frontline special about generation like about how teenagers today, uh, are deeply influenced by growing up in a world that is, um, completely permeated by, social media concerns. One of the things that they noted was that culturally speaking, uh, the convention of selling out had disappeared from language among people who are, I guess, around, um, younger than, than 25, somewhere in that range. And it, it astonished me because, uh, I grew up in a generation that was very concerned with that idea. And it never crossed my mind that ideas like that might wax and wane, might come to the forefront and then be de, uh, dampened by different social norms, or maybe even completely disappear. That ideas about the world could come and go, changed by the technology used by a different culture. Here's an excerpt from the show. Selling out is not selling out anymore. It's sort of getting the brass ring. It's like if you get Taco Bell to sponsor your stuff, it's like, hey, look, I'm important enough that Taco Bell realizes you're an important audience to reach. So yeah, let's all geek out about Taco Bell for a video. I don't care. We just bump into John Mayer because who else would you bump into at a Taco Bell party? And he was so I say now like selling out doesn't even exist as a term. I don't hear young people talking about selling out. I don't even, I'm not sure they even know what it means. Selling out. Can you define that? <laughs> well, selling out means like it could mean different things. I guess, I don't know, I think first of like a concert that's like totally sold out, like no tickets. Left. So concerning selling out, what I got from the documentary was that the old way was to create art and then try to sell that art to your audience for money and your fans were your patrons and getting a record deal was kind of a sign of making it. And uh, you risk selling out if you did that wrong, but uh, doing an ad for Doritos was definitely selling out. But the new way, at least according to young people, is to create art and give it away for free. And you don't care about publishers or record companies anymore because building an audience so big that an advertiser comes knocking is the new sign of making it. And there's no such thing as selling out because advertisers are your patrons. To a different generation who has a different 
media landscape to deal with, has a different way of seeing the world. Selling out is no longer a thing. It's just paying the bills, like working at Taco Bell during the day and playing in a band at night. The audience doesn't really care how you bought that guitar, just that they're using that guitar to make things that they like. The fact that you can pay the bills is what legitimizes you as an artist in this new landscape because it indicates that you're compelling enough to cultivate an audience. And so things have changed. And I had initially had this knee-jerk reaction to it, but then I realized that I was probably wrong, that I was doing that thing from the Just Imagine movie, going, oh, give me the good old days. And that's what happens when the future hits you smack dab in the face and says, look how different this is than you imagined it would be. And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a new topic in the realm of self-delusion. And then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie. And this episode is about the future, thinking about the future, thinking about the present, present bias, and all the things that kind of smear in together and mix in when we think about what it's going to be like to be people years from now decades from now, a hundred years from now, and how we are fairly self-deluded when it comes to thinking in that way. And our expert today is James Burke, the legend, the amazing James Burke, the man behind Connections and the Day the Universe Changed, a man who knows, seemingly knows everything there is to know about history and is able to use that to be really good at predicting the future because he doesn't actually predict the specifics of the future. He talks about the things in the present that are going to have the most impact on the future, about uh, things today that are going to alter society and our understanding of ourselves. You see, most other uh, futurists or people who uh, spend a lot of time thinking about the future get it very, very wrong. And no one has documented that more than Matt Novak, who runs the blog Paleo Future which is where I found the film uh, Just Imagine because Paleo Future is concerned with retrofuturism, imagining how previous generations imagined the future would be. Uh, you can go to his blog and pick 1950s and see how people were imagining the flying cars. Or you can go to the 1990s and uh, see how people were imagining uh, video conferencing and that kind of stuff and how they get some of it right, but they get a lot of it wrong. And um, before getting ready for this episode, I checked back on Matt Novak of Paleo Future, and I was surprised to see that he was commenting on that generation-like piece about selling out, and so that made me happy. But usually, I, I'm reminded of Matt Novak uh, and his work. Um, every time I see something uh, like this uh, come around on the internet. With the A and then the ring around it? At? See, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, case that she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I've never heard or it. I've never heard it said. I'd always seen right. the mark, but never yeah. heard it said. And then yeah. it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. <coughs> yeah, well, I heard it around or about in the lunchroom. <laughs> See, there it is. Violence at NBC. GE com. I mean. Well, well Allison should know. What, what do you is say the internet that anyway? I love this. What is that like, man? Uh, that's Brian Gumbel on the Today Show uh, in 1992, wondering what is internet, and they had no idea that the internet was going to change everything. And um, every time I see something like that, I, I think about um, 
paleo future and how how little anyone in any time period could predict that the internet would be the thing. They always predicted these other things like flying cars and cities in space, but not even Star Trek predicted the internet. And uh, both Matt Novak and James Burke are able uh, to go back and see how previous generations imagine the future and notice that one of the things that makes it so impossible for um, people to generally understand and predict where things are going is because they make this mistake of thinking that the uh, future is written by innovators, that it's written by great scientists or inventors or people who changed history because they're geniuses or because they're simply, um, uh, so far ahead of the curve that they invent something that changes everything. But when you think about the internet, like you don't think of one person who invented it. And that's the right way to think about how the things that come along change everything because no one person is ever responsible for anything that changes us. And that's something that Matt Novak talks about a lot on his, on his blog. Yeah. History is, uh, written by those, those that are often, uh, uh, seen as innovators. But I think that there's, we fall into this trap of looking at history as a series of great men. It's, um, you know, known as the great man myth, uh, people for whatever reason or another, uh, like to look at, um, various figures throughout history. And that's often has to do with, uh, the history of invention, uh, and, and look at them as, uh, the, only motivators that that drive history. Um, for instance, you know, when people fixate on this sort of uh, Nikola Tesla and and Thomas Edison story, um, the fact that it's framed in such a way uh, as as you're probably aware, um, recently, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, thanks to um, a webcomic called the oatmeal, uh, Nikola Tesla became incredibly popular recently, rightly so because of, of some of his innovations, but, um, a, a sort of byproduct of that, an unfortunate byproduct is that people still look at, um, turn of the 20th century inventions as, uh, through the lens of, a, of the great creator myth. Um, you know, when, when we look at, you know, a lot, it's really fashionable right now for people to say that, you know, Tesla, uh, doesn't get enough credit and, and, uh, he actually invented everything. Um, you know, he invented all of these things that we take for granted today, which he had, you know, contributed to in, indeed. Um, but he wasn't a lone inventor. There were a lot of other people working on a lot of similar things. Uh, and he was not inventing in a vacuum. You know, we we have this popular notion of of uh, you know how an iPhone gets made. You know, Steve Jobs uh, goes into a garage and comes out with a fully formed iPhone. Uh, when obviously invention is much more complicated than that, and, and many many people much smarter than I have written about this. Uh, you know, the the all the various myths of how things actually get made in the world, and I think it's dangerous. Quite. I think that it's it's it contributes to a society where we rely on believing that um, that a lone person is responsible for 
uh, how the world may operate. I think that you see this reflected in things like intellectual property, um, the way that we understand it, um, or the way that that the founding fathers understood it was as a limited monopoly granted by the government, uh, where you would have for 14 years um, with the possibility of of re-upping another 14 years, so a maximum of 28 years uh, on your uh, your copyrighted works. Um, I think that we've evolved ever so uh, dangerously throughout the 20th century into believing that um, because of these, uh, the way that we look at these great inventors, that everyone should just own whatever this quote unquote intellectual property is forever. Um, you know, and there, there it's, I think a dangerous idea because as, as I don't care how smart you are or how innovative you are, you didn't do everything, all these things in a vacuum. You didn't create anything in a vacuum. You were, uh, influenced by any number of things. You got your education through any number of ways. Uh, and you no doubt owe many, many people for what you produced. Um, so part of that sort of agreement that we should have as a society, in my rather humble opinion, is that, you know, you should have a limited period where you get to, um, profit and benefit from your work. Uh, but it also shouldn't be absolute. It should, there should, you know, we need to acknowledge things like fair use. We need to acknowledge that there needs to be a term limit on these these protections, these government granted monopolies, so that um, people continue to build on them, to continue to innovate. As Matt said, nothing is invented in a vacuum. Every device, scientific discovery, and work of art is built on the evolution of many different ideas, growing and growing and getting stronger and better and borrowing from each other. Every inventor is really stealing and borrowing from many sources and synthesizing them and locking things into place that are ready to be connected. No one by themselves invents the light bulb or the car or the iPhone or Lord of the Rings, not from scratch. They steal and borrow from others. There's no such thing as a wholly original work, yet our laws reflect that there is. And our conception of who we are and where we came from seems to believe this idea as well. Because uh, as Matt said in another part of our conversation, it makes for a better story. It's just easier to understand where we came from and where we are by placing things on a timeline. That is, and on that timeline, we have this genius and this inventor and this ruler and this decisive action and that's how we came to be where we are today. But that is not how it works. In fact, James Berg's entire philosophy and what makes it makes for a better story to me than the timeline, because it reveals that each one of us plays a part, that the entire system is folded on top of itself, lines going in every direction, a big mishmash, a thousand spider webs tangled up in each other. And that's really how human history works. That's really how human invention works. But since that's how it works, it's very difficult to understand it until years have gone by. And then you can turn around and look at it and see how it all came together. And that's why it's so hard to predict in the future how things are going to be. Because you really have a hard time when you're in the middle of the network understanding how it all connects. James Burke writes in his book, 
connections, in some way or other, each one of us affects the course of history. Because of the extraordinarily serendipitous way change happens, something you do during the course of today may eventually change the world. So he goes on to write, you don't have to be Einstein to make your mark on events. We all contribute. This is because there's no grand design to the way history goes. The process does not fall neatly into categories such as those we are taught in school. For example, most of the elements contributing to the historical development of transportation had nothing to do with vehicles. So there are no rules for how to become an influential participant on the web of change. There's no right way. Equally, there's no way to guarantee that your great project, meant to alter the course of history, will ever succeed. It's a really interesting way of looking at the world. As Burke writes, change almost always comes as a surprise because things don't happen in straight lines. In other words, people who are working on trains aren't usually the people who are doing the thing that ends up changing the way trains work forever. People who are working on computers aren't usually the people who do the thing that changes the way we use computers forever. For instance, and this may be my favorite James Burke connection, it comes from his show Connections, which you have to watch if you haven't already. Uh, find it, get it, buy it, love it. And uh, it's also in his book Connections, which is uh, available uh, uh, on Kindle. You should get it right now. It's really, really great. Uh, here's the connection. It's 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 amazing, but uh, you can go from the water wheel of medieval Europe to the bubonic plague, to the printing press, to... Um, the automated loom to the punch card to the census takers of the early United States to the invention of the computer. Straight straight through, easily. And uh, it's because after the bubonic plague, there were a whole lot of clothes left behind. And uh, there was also a lot of um, people buying clothes with newfound wealth because now that the labor market had been diminished, people could demand more for their labor. And what you ended up with were a lot more rags, a lot more linens that uh, had never been this, there had never been this abundance of linens before. And they were reduced down by other people making money off of this to paper. And so there was a lot more paper in the world. And with this giant abundance of paper, the world was ready for an invention like movable type to take advantage of it. And of course that was invented, which led to the printing press, which led to all the rest. It's an incredible story that uh, it would take another hour to explain, but it is so amazing. It's just one of many that he connects. And he shows that any two people or any two uh, events in history, any two uh, inventions, you can find that sort of lightning bolt pattern of uh, this meandering uh, path through the web of our interconnectedness. And I think that's just fantastic. It's it is the proper and most wonderful way to look at the human species and how it is is flowing and changing itself and moving forward and progressing, and how we're all part of that thing together. I really love it. And so it is my intense pleasure to have James Burke on this show. He is without a doubt a legend in the world of science communication, a legend who stands shoulder to shoulder with Carl Sagan and David Attenborough. He is a great inspiration to many people who are working in the world of science communication and journalism. I think that uh, everyone I've spoken to about James Burke over the years thinks of him in the same way. 
uh, with a great reverence and a warm place in your heart because he's so funny and fascinating and knows how to get these ideas across. James Burke uh, started out as a uh, university uh, lecturer, professor, teacher, but he went on to become a, a reporter for the BBC. He covered the first moon landing and he created Connections and The Day the Universe Changed, along with several other programs, all of which are the influence for pretty much everything that you watch on television that has anything to do with science or history. James Burke's work is the great influence on all of that stuff. And using his connections uh, view of looking at the world, he would never say that he was a legend in the way that I'm saying it. He would say that anyone can do what he does. He just happened to be the one lucky enough to get to do it first in the way that he did it. But I think credit should go to where credit is due. And we all love James Burke. Anyone who is trying to talk about stuff like this loves James Burke. So it is my intense pleasure to have him on the show. Um, the interview though, I want to say has a couple of sounds in it that may, um, um, surprise you. So let me get you ready for it. There's uh, every once in a while I was using a very sensitive microphone. You will hear thumping on the table or the clicking of a pin. We were both doing that sort of stuff while we were talking and we were just unaware that it was going to be picked up by the microphone. So please forgive that as you listen to the interview. But what most, what's most important is you're about to find out what James Burke is thinking about right now. And he's going to tell us. So let's pick his brain. We were talking earlier about how um, how connections is is something that everyone comes up to you and talks about how it really changed their lives and did everything. But it was also and how it's like uh, it's led people to different career paths and shown how the world's different. But what's neat about that is how we all have at a certain age, everyone has seen connections. And as you get younger and younger, the pop culture that you use to talk about gets more and more fragmented. Mm. So I'd imagine like back historic, you know, <clears throat> further back in time, everyone would just talk about Shakespeare or mm. Milton or whatever. Mm. Now we all talk about Sesame Street mm -hmm. and connections and stuff. And mm -hmm. so what do you, how do you see that altering people socially that, that as the world that we all are familiar with, it gets more and more fragmented that we don't all have that same foundation to begin a conversation with a stranger. I'm a bit concerned in the short term about the fact that this fragmentation you speak of will move people further and further away from what used to be a common culture, a, thing, a limited form of expressing ourselves as a society with, into which everybody subscribed. I mean, the further back you go in history, the simpler that subscription becomes, you know. And way, way back it is, do what the shaman tells you and what the paintings on the side of the wall, the cave, tell you to do. And, uh, you know, in the 18th century or the 17th century in Britain, you know, it's, it's uh, be a Catholic or a Protestant or whatever. Um, th there's been an explosion in the last 40, 50 years in the fragmentation that you speak of um, in the sense of tools becoming rapidly more and more available with which individuals can indulge themselves. I was going to say communicate, but I don't mean that. Um, individuals, I think, are beginning because of this new technology to recognize that it doesn't matter anymore if they don't conform to the five rules that society requires of them, you know, like be brilliant, go to a good school, get a good university, blah, blah, blah. 
but that with the new technology you can express yourself as well as anybody else. And therefore, in a sense, you no longer feel that those old-fashioned virtues have any value anymore. And it seems to me that, you know, the more the more people begin to see themselves as kind of autonomous, culturally autonomous, the less value they'll place on the common cultural uh, infrastructure that we used to live by. And the problem there is that the common cultural infrastructure is what held us together and kept us safe. Um, in In the crudest possible sense of the word, before a, a society with police, you walk down the street, you'll get killed. Mm-hmm. After a society without police, the same thing occurs. So are we heading for that? Are we heading for even more dangerous streets? That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem which will be solved, I mean, in one of two ways. One is the technology itself becomes it more pos- becomes, makes it more possible for society to be even more regulated than before, never mind what people do in the privacy of their own homes which will become even less regulated. I mean, you know, we're already not shocked by knowing that 11-year-olds see and send each other pornographic uh, material. Mm. Once upon a time, you would be burned at the stake for even saying such a thing. Um, So what's happening inside, in the privacy of people's own homes and so on, is, is becoming more and more and more cut off from what the raw infrastructural rules of how society functions like the police and driving at a speed limit and not getting drunk when you get in a car and getting an education that it that gives you a degree that is recognized by various people around the world with the internet this fragmentation it seems to me dangerously moves everyone creates this massive dichotomy between what you do in the privacy of your own home which, of course, is no longer your own home because you're talking to people around the world, anywhere, anybody you like, anywhere you like. And what happens in the street outside where the police still patrol and the, and the laws still obtain. I'm concerned that, that we are not... If I have a single major concern, it is that our educational systems are absolutely refusing to recognise the need to move as fast as possible to deal with this problem because the problem of people getting total freedom without a sense of responsibility comes from the fact that they haven't been educated to realise that they do they ought to have a sense of responsibility. Not that they have to behave in certain ways, but they, if they want to do, they do. They do what they do, that's up to them, but they do it aware that the community exists around them and that they have to fit into that community. Or when they go out on the street, they'll get a terrible shock because the police will, you know, they'll stop being totally self-indulgent, whatever they like, with their friends in Ouagadougou, mm-hmm. and they walk under the streets of whatever it is, and they'll... Yeah. So, the, it seems to me the answer lies in this intransigence on the part of the educational system mm-hmm. to to use the technology to become entirely different. To, to Our educational system goes all the way back to Mesopotamia. I mean, to the scribes in, in under Hammurabi, you know, two, three, whatever, a thousand mm-hmm. years before Christ. It hasn't really essentially changed. And it, it's, it's crude, limited, uh, draconian, top-down, authoritative. Um, if you're not a round peg, you don't fit in the round hole. And, and if that's the case, then you're a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true in, in other aspects of our culture as well. Absolutely, absolutely. We have these re- extraordinarily limiting constraints from a past in which we did not have the tools to have anything other than extraordinarily limiting constraints. But now we do have the tools, and the tools are running away with us faster than the social institutions can keep up. 
<clears throat> it seems to me that we urgently need to set up. Well, I've been toying with an idea, which I don't know whether it go down very well or not. But I mean, I think that that a country, any country, but let's say America, America or Britain, I think countries ought to set up Department of the Future. We now have big data and and nanotechnological promises of computing capabilities that make what we can do now look like like you know hacking something in stone mm-hmm. in terms of the capabilities we are on the edge of having the technology to be able to say let us run a constant dynamic updated review of everything that science and technology is thinking about in terms of what may or may not be the kind of innovation coming down the road and then let us use the same techniques to ask the public in general not politicians whether they like that idea whether they feel that they could live with that idea and then like a delphi technique rerun it until everybody stops changing their mind when they hear a bit more a bit more a bit more you know the old <laughs> right. delphi technique right. is you go on telling them and they say oh shit then i better well once they've stopped changing their mind that tends to mean that the community has arrived at a decision with which you can live so there are techniques that allow you to do that and 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 use this, these techniques. We almost have the technology already to set up a department of the future run by, for the moment anyway, a government, mm-hmm. um, which let's, let's pretend at a very simple level, you had, you had centers all around the country, each one of which uh, looked at the work of major research laboratories, both private and public, both university and, and, and commercial. Without, uh, without breaching commercial secrecy, to say these are areas that look promising. Collate all those all together and process them using stuff like big data to see what the pattern looks like becoming. And then layering on top of that social media analytics to say, if this was coming, would you like it? And if not, why not? In other words, to have a sort of 24 hour a day referendum mm-hmm. on a conversation of, of yes right. on what the future is going to be and then make it happen mm-hmm. because after that I mean if if we were able to say to a corporation that was about to produce DDT well in fact most people don't think it's a great idea and they won't buy it the company's going to say fine shareholders don't want to create something that will not be bought and they won't make it no you, people say well that's draconian and it's uh, Whatever, you know, yes and no. The market always decides what it wants. Mm-hmm. If people don't buy it, forget it. Doesn't matter how brilliant you think the idea is, if nobody buys it, forget it. Right. So it's always been going on. You know, it used to be the king, now it's the market mm-hmm. that says you can or can't do something. All I'm saying is this might move things to the stage where it's the populace in general that say you can or can't do something. And after all, vox populi, vox dei, either the voice of the people is the voice of God or it isn't. And if it, I mean, if it isn't, why have we got the so-called democracy crap going? Right. So. And you, you, um, you, you mentioned earlier we were talking about, uh, and you, you said this a couple of times today that democracy in and of itself has some, um, as we move forward and as things are changing for us culturally and technologically, that there are many elements of democracy that aren't, uh, that seem almost subject to um, being either done away with or altered drastically. And there seems to be no move to do that. Like you were talking very much about the binary system of, of uh, Republican, Democrat, <laughs> yeah. liberal, conservative. Could you sort of uh, elaborate on, on your on your views on that? Well, I mean, you know, 
the, the, the two and three party system which most Western countries have hasn't really changed since the 18th century. Um, in spite of the fact that the rest of the world has changed. I mean, the rest of the society around it has changed. I mean, you know, it used to be that a representative democracy is you have somebody to stand up there and think about the things that you would think about if you had the time, but you haven't got the time. So you know, somebody said in our discussion, I don't want to make up my mind. I want somebody else to do it for me. That, that kind of thinking comes from not having the tools that make it easy very quickly in, your own, in privacy of your own home and in privacy and when you have a moment to be told the data that, that that politician is being told. These are the these are the facts. Make up your mind, decide. And then punch a button and put it in. Put your information, put your, your view into the machine. Um, re representative democracy is neither representative nor democratic. It's not democratic because it doesn't represent every single view, because every single view is boiled down to one of two views. It's not representative because it doesn't represent my 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 representative doesn't know me. How can he represent me? He can represent me as a number when I go to the ballot box. If I go to the ballot box, and increasingly people don't. Um, and it's like the educational system. We have these institutions that are like like tankers. You know, they, they take one hell of an effort to change them, change the course. And we need to change very fast. It's, it's, it, it's, um, the dangers of anarchy are too great. Um, the, the fragmenting that you were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. the dangers inherent in a, a dichotomy between what society pretends it is, which is political structures and institutions and on doing their daily work and here come the police, blah, 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 and people in the privacy of their own homes talking to Wagadougou or anywhere else mm -hmm. and living this crazy, insane parallel universe, which right. is what it'll become. And that's true in, in my hometown is that I think many of the people who are my age, we feel like we live in a, a world that's online and we communicate online and we interact with media that has nothing to do with our local uh, government. Yeah. And there are older people who interact with the local government, but we li I live there in body but not in mind. Absolutely. And we have, I mean, we have the same kind of problem right now, for example. You know, there are massive floods in London and it's becoming clear that the, uh, that the political elite who live in London have no idea what the real world is about because they're too busy debating points of order. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, points of order are very important. <laughs> but there are moments when, it, when, you know, when there is a dysfunction there because the system is not flexible and fast enough and doesn't, like, like the example you talk about, where there are two universes going on. And, and the real universe where people, you know, get flooded and suffer and whatever, whatever. I, well, I mean, I can do no more than to say what I said before. I think that we are rapidly moving towards a separation of the, of, of the two. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you know, all these lunatics in the privacy of their own house are going to come out one day. <laughs> right. And then God save us all. <laughs> right. Has there been, was there, has there been a similar uh, cultural shift in history to, to one like, like this or likened to it in, in any way? Print, I suppose. Print. Mm, print. And, and, you know, the, I think the Bishop of, I forget, the Bishop of St. Albans said, printing will make reading the infatuation of people who have no business reading. And what he meant was, don't let those guys get these books because mm -hmm. if, if you know, if they do, it's the end. And sure as hell, it was called Protestantism. I mean, Protestantism happened not because Luther stuck up some things on a handwritten thing on a church door, but because his stuff was printed and right. sent around Europe yeah. like within weeks. Right. And the entire 
world fell apart, mm. you know. It's that powerful. And when these loonies in their private private houses come out onto the streets with these ideas, I mean, they're not... I don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen. Right. Mm. I, uh, Clay Tricky, though, has written about how, like, he, and I'm sure he got it from many different sources, but mm. the, the printing, you know, the world before the printing press and after the printing press was so different. Absolutely. Because the book was something that... Um, it was passed down yes, through, yes, through generations, yes, and it was mainly, yes, yes, mainly yes. It was a Bible in Latin, yeah, and yeah. then all of a sudden now you have pornography, and you have books about uh, the circulatory system. Yeah, but you have but the amazing thing is, it seems to me, the two kind of two big things. A, old people stop having authority, hmm. because it doesn't depend on how old a guy is and how much he remembers. You, re you can read in a book. So young people get authority. The world turned upside down. And the second thing is, you can't tax people. You, mm. Suddenly, you can tax people because oh, yeah, okay. you print and stick it on the on the on the on the village green. This is your tax, and you will pay it on this day. Mm -hmm. And it goes all over the country instantly, and all over the country instantly, everybody knows they have to pay. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that you run society in a totally different way with print than you did before. <clears throat> and it, re it requires. And Clive Thompson uh, uh, has has written about this. He says, you know, well, in, after the printing press, you need a new civics, and then people have to be educated in that new <clears throat> civics. Yeah. And so now with the internet and the web making it possible for a person to, it doesn't matter where you live geographically, you can have your message heard, yes. more, there's a meritocracy, yes. all these other things, yep. that that requires a new civics. And this so, is what I was saying earlier, yeah, right. about, about education. Need to, Absolutely. People will have to learn that at some point. So we're kind of in that yeah. weird transition Yeah, I know, place. but the trouble is, you see, where the hell are they going to learn it? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, they could learn it on the internet because you can learn everything on the internet, but, but will they know how? Yeah. Because, as I was saying earlier, learning to learn is the most important thing about learning learning to know how to find out stuff. And, you know, it, it's not, not necessarily true with our educational background mm -hmm. that we will go to this new internet and say, hooray, I know what to learn. Because we you don't. Can find, you can find someone to support whatever you already Exactly, believe, exactly. Right? We have learned, n nobody's taught us critical facilities, we need to have critical faculties, we need to do this. And that's why I go back again to the educational system, which is mired in the 17th, no, 12th century. And we had this, when I talked to him about this, we came to a similar point, which is where you, it's almost as if you have to roll everything back to teach logic and critical thinking yes. and start there yeah. and then people can be let loose. Yes, yes. I mean, the very important point you've just made because it, it's no longer important to teach people to be chemists or physicists or anything anythingists because those jobs are gone. Uh -huh. And if they're not gone today, they're gone tomorrow. And and unless we know the, 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 the old tools of critical thinking and logic, so we will not be able to handle what follows. Mm -hmm. So we're wasting our time training people to be things that will no longer exist in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Um, the so-called specialties, mm -hmm. specialization uh, domains. Right. Um, I wanted to take a chance, uh, take an opportunity to talk about you. You are working on maybe a new book, maybe a new project, mm -hmm. and, and you've spoken about it. And uh, if you don't feel like repeating, don't, <laughs> don't mind repeating yourself a little bit. Um, for the recording. Mm. Um, tell me a little bit about what you see when it comes to scarcity and abundance, what you're, how you're thinking about that right now. Well, I'm, I don't know what I'm thinking about it right now because I'm, you know, I don't know about you, but I, when I'm doing a book, I tend to say, I know what this book is about. Then I do a lot of research and I think, I don't know what this <laughs> exactly. book is about. Then I do, I, I sort of, I review. And I think, no, no, it's about this. And then I think, no, wait a minute, I've dumped some stuff and I really shouldn't have dumped it. And it goes on being like that. It's like trying to catch fish. With a, with a net and you've got the net in the right or the wrong place. So at the moment I have this big pile of stuff, some of which I went off in another direction, whatever, you know what it's like, exactly. it's chaos. So what I have to say about it is, is um, I'm, I'm unformed. Okay. Um, otherwise I'd have written the book. <laughs> right. 
but generally speaking I'm interested in looking at the ways in which our present culture has been shaped by millennia of experience with living with the need to manage the problem of, of scarcity. In some form or other, somewhere, at some point in time, there was always not enough of something. Enough for it to be critical and enough for somebody to have to do something about it. Pharaoh, church, government, individual, whatever. And that, and that during, the, during the course of history, these different moments of crisis have occurred and triggered the establishment of some kind of social infrastructure, institution, way of doing things, set of values, set of behaviours that would handle this particular aspect of shortfall that, that was worrying the society at the time. And these, this accretion of these behaviour sets and institutions and ways of doing things and ways of thinking and values to aim for, which all were set up at different times throughout history in, in regard in response to different specific problems regarding scarcity, have all fed into what we are now. Mm-hmm. And what we are now is probably terrifically good at dealing with scarcity, Ex- unless you're an African these days, or one or two other people, because well, that's a different matter. Um, so what we have done is taught ourselves over history to be extremely proficient in dealing with the problem of scarcity. We've not dealt with it totally because we have scarcity, and there always has been scarcity. But we've, we've mitigated the worst effects because our society hasn't fallen apart. So that is proof that we have mitigated the worst effects because enough of us have survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the nanofabricator making anything you wish from the molecular level up, atomic level up really, with, with raw material consisting mainly of dirt, air and water mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of carbon which you get from acetylene gas. And of course the minute you have a faber, you make your own acetylene gas, so you just need the, the, the first bottle. Like the home, a home fabrication Yeah, device. home fabrication okay. device. Like a, like a, they call them, you know, well they're calling them 3D printers, right? Now. But 3D printer is a different thing. Okay. Because so, yeah, a 3D printer uses material and shapes it. Okay. But you have to put the material in. Okay. This thing works at the atomic level okay. and where there's no such thing as. I mean, you make the molecule you want in order to put the molecules together to make stuff. Once you've got the stuff, then you shape it. Mm-hmm. Like a Star Trek replicator. Kind of exactly. Thing. Okay. Exactly. You say, I want a cup of coffee, you get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. You want a Mona Lisa, I want a bar of gold and whatever. Um, and and the, 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 the general opinion is about 40 to 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, working to produce anything you want and not costing anything because the first thing a fabricator does as I said in my talk is make itself make a copy of itself so the general thinking is a fabricator for everybody on the planet within two years of, of the first one because the first one makes another one so it goes one two four eight sixteen thirty I mean, it takes no time at all right and you send out the information for for, for structuring the thing by 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 Wi-Fi or, or some online means, and of course, it, to build the thing is easy because the raw material is everywhere. Right. Huh? Dirt, air, and water. Okay. So it's going to happen awfully fast, and it's going to happen much faster than we can deal with because we're still looking backwards, dealing with the business of handling software, uh, handling scarcity. Mm-hmm. So the book says, "Is there anything we've learned from handling scarcity that will help us to handle abundance?" And at the moment, I think the answer is no, mm-hmm. nothing at all. It will require like a complete reboot of A everything. complete reboot, exactly. Every single value structure is meaningless, including so-called truth and all, <laughs> the, all these other fancy words people are chucking around. Right. I mean, everything is meaningless. The, 
the, the uh, so-called free market, capitalist, whatever you want to call it, society, commercial society, will be destroyed at a stroke. Mm-hmm. The trouble is the transition period. Right. And that's what I think I want to concentrate on most. How do we get from here to there? There, utopia, blah, blah. Anybody can write stuff about that. The hard stuff, and I haven't really tackled the problem seriously yet, is to deal with how we get from here to there. Right. The vested interests mm-hmm. are going... I mean, they're going to have, we're going to have to shoot every one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> nobody, nobody is going to give way to this. No, of course not. Because it's everything. Uh-huh. It's everything. And there's so many cultural values that will have to... Everything. Change. All cultural values relate to scarcity, mm-hmm. ultimately. And when there are no cultural values, what do you have? Do you need any if you live entirely autonomously on a mountain in Antarctica? What, what do you need for cultural values? Right. Huh? And if you interact with 3D holograms of everybody else, you know, there are all kinds of cultural problems to be solved before we even do that, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can see the kind of micro, microcosm of the problem when today, as I said earlier, 11-year-olds are swapping pornographic views of themselves. Mm-hmm. 23 years ago, we would have been horrified to even think of saying those words in a conversation. Now, it's happening. So, all of a sudden, we have these little kids doing things that are unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And they're doing them, and there's nothing we can do to stop them. Mm -hmm. So, what is happening to them, and as a result, what will their life be like, and when they interact with the community, what will the community be like? So, they're already, I want to say, poisoning the world because I'm an old fogey. (laughs) Somebody in the future would say, bringing the truth, or whatever. Or just, just different. Just or just doing it, yeah. yes. Because the thing about it, it seems to me about abundance, is just doing it. There'll be no can I, may I, should I do anything. As long as it doesn't, what, will there be a rule that says don't, what do they say in, in medicine? No, do no harm. Do no harm. Right. First of all, do no harm. It, will that be the only rule? Do no harm. Will we be? Will human beings be noble enough to meet a world of that kind of? Abundance? Well, you could have asked that in the Middle Ages and said, "No, we'll never stop chopping people up and pulling their vitals out while they're you know string them up and hang draw and quarter them." I mean, if you'd said to people pulling the guts out of some poor bastard who'd been hung long enough to be nearly dead but alive enough to know his guts were being pulled out, then you chop his head off. People say, "Never happen," you know. So yes, people can get noble enough to do better things. We did. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. I think I've read that um, in the Middle Ages, the chances of dying by the hands of another human being were like 25% in your lifetime or something. Yeah, yeah. And now that's down to like, almost, like around one. Yes, 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 yes. Um, okay, so food used to be very scarce, and then people would have these banquets to show off how much money they had or that they were able to hunt or whatever. Lunch, yeah. Right? And then in modern society, food is so insanely abundant that now the task becomes can you stay your hand and not eat the food mm-hmm. and so now the the cultural um what's valued culturally is a person who is able to not eat too much and remain healthy and they can show that off to people um and uh it seems as i think that that transitional period you're talking about is going you're going to see a lot of uh moments where all of a sudden we have this abundance and we don't know like you know if if I can make a diamond by just pressing a button, mm. and the, mm. the diamonds have mm. absolutely no, no. Uh, culturally True. ascribed yep. value ever again, yep. that all these things that we're used to having value ascribed to them because of abundance will now have zero value. Yes. Yes. And we'll have to come up with a completely new value system for what we appreciate other human beings. Yeah. Why do we have to have a system, you see, at all? I mean, sorry, okay. I don't mean to no, be no, rude to no, you, no, but, that's, that's but is a value system an old-fashioned think? Oh, that's a great idea. You see? Oh, yeah. I mean, a value system means let's all share something. Well, the, the thing, one of the big problems about abundance, it seems to me, is we won't be sharing anything. I mean, why? why? We only share things now because we have to. 
Mm. Uh, we only share that, you know, it's bad to hit somebody, it's bad to steal, it's, it's good to be good looking, it's good to um, have a good education. These things may not matter at all, uh, in the sense that n nothing communal may matter. If you are entirely autonomous, what, 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 what value system do you want except your own? Mm. It's like so strangely like solipsistic, like you are, you, you can be a universe into yourself and what does that mean? Or you can have a small group of people that are so self-sufficient that they well, don't have to interact. So yeah, much. but the trouble there is, you see, I mean, you know, with 3D holograms and the kind of computing capabilities that might be possible, you can create that universe for yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can have all these friends and all these people and all these interactions and live like people are doing in your town now in their homes in their lunatic world. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you create your own world, you create your own, you know, your own, your own cyber universe and live in it. What difference is that? What's the difference between that and living in except you don't go out and get wet? Right. I don't know. Uh, well, it's, it's a problem we have to think about because yeah. in transition we've got to get there. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit uh, comforted by the fact that most people can't, have never been able to predict the future very well. So, <laughs> so whether it's good or bad, uh, you know. Yeah, but, but I think the trouble about, about nanotechnology is that it could be very, very good or horrendously bad. Oh, right. And I think we have to think about which one we want. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think people want it to be horrendously right. bad. I mean, one of the one of the things in nanotechnology seems to make possible is for you to build your own nuclear device easily, very easily. You know, what is a world where anyone can build a nuclear bomb? Exactly, like? exactly. I mean, nuclear bomb in every backyard. What? I mean, so, I don't trust my uncle with a gun. I don't. Do, yeah. So, do we have to have? Will there have to be some kind of cultural behavior? That is to say, there will be a. I don't know what it would be, some kind of software police that says there are certain things hmm. the machine will not do. Now, of course, what you might be able to do is to program and then companies, then I come back on myself and say the hacker will do something. That's the problem. Because you could easily, you know, make sure that the, that the network of embedded, trillions of embedded dust mode sized computers in, in the, on the planet running the place, you know, like, like Asimov's third law, was mm -hmm. it, you know, um, won't do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, until the first hacker says, well, I know how to do it, mm -hmm. and then he does it. just can't stop the hacker. Yeah, and there's a nuclear explosion in Iowa, and everybody says, Christ, how did that happen? You know, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. These are problems you've got to think about. Yeah. All I'm saying is, help, help, the ship is sinking, guys. Right. <laughs> you know. um, I don't want to keep you any longer. I asked no, you I one, gotta go. one last uh, sure. thing, and that was that... Uh, <laughs> I love that you, uh, many people that uh, have come up to you and say, uh, how do you make all these connections? How did you do this? How, you're a, you seem to be this fantastical mind who can do all these things, and you always counter it with that anyone could do this. Yes. You just happen to be the yeah. first person on TV to do it. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I just happened to do it when the BBC was offering money to go and do a series of programs about it, and I did it, and then I became famous, and so everybody says, you did it first. There may be hundreds of people, thousands of people who did it before me, I'm, I would be surprised if they weren't. I mean, that's how the brain works. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's got one of these things, and they all work like connections. And they all, and you, you make this point that um, we're all on equal footing. It's all about opportunity. Yes. Well, more than that. I mean, we're on an equal footing, and it's and it's all about opportunity as long as we all have the same tools. Mm -hmm. And with an educational system up until now, we do not have the same tools. Uh, this is the great hope I have for, 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 for the internet and for nanotechnology, that it will give everybody the same tools. But we sure as hell don't have the same tools if you look at the schools in, in Oxford as opposed to Hoboken, mm -hmm. 
you know, or anywhere else you choose, mm-hmm. we do not have the same tools. Mm-hmm. Well, when we get all the same tools, then, then we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Come the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you no, so, pleasure, pleasure. so pleasure. much. A great pleasure. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DUMDUM, D-U-M-D-U-M. Now, what is Squarespace? It is a service for making websites. It is a service for making websites that look good, are easy to use, and can make whatever it is you're doing better by giving your audience a chance to interact with it in a way that shows that you actually care about making cool stuff neat and interesting and easy to use. Squarespace is constantly improving their website with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all of their style options give you the opportunity to create a unique website for you or your business. Squarespace has more than 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from, and they've won numerous awards from prestigious institutions for their designs like the FWA, the Webbies, and Forbes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need help, if you're stuck, if you want some assistance, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week with more than 70 employees who are on their customer care team, which is based in New York and has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. Their customer support team has won numerous awards and they recently won a Gold Stevie Award. It starts at $8 a month, just $8 a month, and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on every device, every time. So start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code DUMDUM, D-U-M-D-U-M, to get 10% off and show your support for the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We thank Squarespace for their support, and Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional website. And now we return to our program. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is really, really, really proud to be part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. Go over to boingboing.net and look for podcasts and you will find all sorts of things like Boars, Gore and Swords, uh, a podcast that talks about uh, science fiction and fantasy. You'll also find podcasts like uh, Recommended If You Like, which talks about um conversations with musicians, cartoonists, and writers. You also have the new disruptors, which talks to people who are really shaking up things and, uh, starting businesses or doing things in the world of uh, broadcast or print or publishing that, uh, completely are changing the way the game is played. You also find Gweek, which is just this great podcast, uh, where Mark Fraunfelder talks to people who are involved in geeky, interesting things every week. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff to, to choose from. And recently, uh, the new disruptors had a great, uh, episode where they talked to Jane Friedman and Manjula Martin, who founded scratch magazine, which is a digital only publication that was born digital and it tells writers what they're worth and how the publishing industry actually works. 
that is a cool idea for a podcast. There's also Tell Me Something I Don't Know, which is a podcast about writers and artists and filmmakers and other creative people who discuss their work and their ideas. So uh, if you're interested in anything like that, you need to go over to Boing Boing Podcast. They're just this classy, fantastic world of geeky stuff and people who are making creative uh, things that I think you would be interested in. So check it out, boingboing.net. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. On each episode C of the You Are Not So Smart cookie. podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week's recipe comes to us from the wonderful, fantastic Patrick Regan. Patrick Regan sent me this email that said his great-grandmother passed down this recipe for these cookies, and he's not sure where she got the recipe or if she just made it up, but they are fantastic. He says he can't make them as well as uh, his grandmother could make them or his great-grandmother, but he still loves them. So this is kind of a weird recipe. A lot of complicated stuff goes into this. You have orange, uh, they're called orange slice cookies, and they come from Grandma Mabel. And you have brown sugar, margarine, eggs, baking soda, flour, coconut, vanilla, and a pound of the uh, that orange slice candy that that so it has a little has little grains on the outside and it's it's squishy. It has a kind of a, a sticky gummy bear texture to it. Well, you chop all that stuff up into these cookies before you make them, and for, before you bake them, and you end up with what looks like. To the outside, uh, it looks kind of like a piece of fruitcake, to tell you the truth, except it just has oranges in it. And we are going to try this wonderful, beautiful, grandmother and great-grandmother approved cookie right now. Moving away from the microphone so you won't get sick hearing me too. Here it goes in my mouth. Oh, wow. That's not expected at all. Hello there, Grandma Mabel. What's that you have there, Grandma? Orange slices. What are, what are you doing with this? Don't dump them into the cookie. You did. And I'm glad you did. So at first you're like, what's the big deal? It's just a cookie. Just a little crunchy, buttery, what? And then you taste the orange slice candy. And it's very overpowering. It's the only thing you can really taste. And then you level off into buttery cookie bliss. That's a, this is a strange cookie. This is weird. Patrick Regan, what's up with your great grandmother? She was experimenting in the, in the kitchen. I want to know all the other experiments she may have gone through because if, if, first of all, if these cookies, uh, now my wife baked these cookies, Amanda. Um, but if your great grandmother could, could bake cookies better than these, like using the same ingredients and the same general technique, then uh, she obviously you know, melted faces with her cookie powers. But what else could she make? What else was she dumping into cookies? And was this an accident? Was she just sitting around the kitchen one day and was like, I'll put that in a cookie. <laughs> That'd be good. 
Hmm, let's try salty taffy. And how about this rock candy? Oh, that could be a good combination. See, now, now I want to know what's going on in that kitchen. Hmm. If you can help me solve that mystery, Patrick Regan, please let me know. And if you out there listening audience uh, have something strange that your grandmother invented in cookie format, please send that recipe to me and I will send you what I'm sending to Brian, a signed copy of You Can Beat Your Brain, the UK version of my second book, which in the United States and other territories is called You Are Now Less Dumb. All right, so let's talk about some self-delusion, shall we? This is a really interesting study that came out of the University of Montreal. They put this press release out, uh, this news release, and it says, the headline of the news release says, Smokers' Brains Biased Against Negative Images of Smoking. And the question asked by the news release is, what if the use of a product influenced your perception of it, making you more susceptible to its positive aspects and altering your understanding of its drawbacks? That's the first um, sentence in the news release. And it's a strange thought because um, what researchers discovered, these researchers, they are out of the University of uh, the University Institute of Mental Health at Montreal, the University of Montreal, and they worked within the university's uh, research center at the uh, Institute of Mental Health. And what they found was that whenever you put people into a brain scanner and you then show those people images uh, or you show them advertisements that portray smoking in a negative light, you will see different re, um, different activation within the brain. You will find different aspects and different parts of the brain coming alive and receiving more blood, depending on whether or not the person is or is not currently a smoker. One of the researchers is quoted in the uh, news release as saying, uh, specifically, we discovered that the brain regions associated with motivation are more active in smokers when they see pleasurable images associated with cigarettes and less active when smokers are confronted with the negative aspects, the negative effects of smoking. That's a quote from uh, an assistant professor, uh, Stephanie Potvin, who is a co-author of the study. And uh, this was done with neuroimaging, and it was done inside of a, one of those machines that shows you the brain scan of uh, what is um, active and what is not active in the brain. And what's interesting about this is uh, I saw around the internet people were making comments about this uh, study, and they were saying things like, yeah, uh, of course, if you're a smoker, you're not going to like to look at advertisements that say smoking is bad. You're going to resist that stuff. But um, I think that really misses the point. When you say something like, of course, you're going to resist it. What do you mean? What is happening? What's happening underneath the surface that makes a person feel that way? And that's what this research is about. It's showing that bef uh, non-consciously, before you can even uh, put it into words or put it into thoughts, something is happening inside the brain of a person who smokes that makes them resistant to anti-smoking images that then gets translated into consciousness and becomes available to consciousness and then gets communicated in some way. Um, the significance is that the response to the stimuli is happening in a non-conscious automatic way within the brain and now we have imaged that neurological response using a technique that has never been applied to the scenario before. So yes, we already knew that people did this at the behavioral level, but that's not really the point. What are the underpinnings of that behavior? Observing behavior is not enough. So um, we often observe things and we can probably expect to observe 
those things in similar conditions when it comes to behavior. But what is this, the significance here? What is of significance here is that we're learning more about what causes that sort of thing. People tend to do it, but why? What are we looking at? So are we consciously aware of what is happening in our brain or are we slaves to the output of the system? Or is there a gray area? Is there, is it just influencing our behavior and our thoughts? I don't know. That's what this study didn't go that far. All it says is here's what we've observed. Here's the evidence. And the evidence is when you put a non-smoker into a brain scanner, uh, you will see the brain light up in ways that it doesn't and uh, in the brain of a person who does smoke. If you show them images that uh, portray smoking in a negative light. And that is fascinating. The actual study is called where there's smoke, uh, there's fire, the brain reactivity of chronic smokers when exposed to the negative value of smoking. And it was published in progress in neuropsychopharmacology and biological psychiatry, volume 50, April 3rd, 2014. Um, they say in the research paper that the rationale for doing this research was that we already know that, uh, smoking is addictive and that, it causes a person who is addicted to smoking to be uh, stimulated by things that remind them of smoking and that impedes their smoking secession efforts. But it also shows that um, people, their consumption can seems to be unaffected mostly by the negative aspects of smoking, even when you're exposed to images of that stuff. And they go on to say in the actual paper uh, that their conclusion is that brain activation is, um, what they observed is that chronic smokers experience aversive smoking, uh, aversive responses when processing aversive smoking related stimuli. And that triggers a, uh, a weaker negative emotional response when they view negative smoking related, uh, stuff. So the, the main takeaway here is, uh, something is happening in the brain, uh, uncontrolled, automatic, non-conscious, uh, and not, um, under the control of the brain owner, whenever they look at these, uh, advertisements that say stop smoking, that, uh, doesn't give them the powerful, uh, I shouldn't do that feelings that a person who is not smoking gets whenever they see those images. And so it's not just conscious. It's not just by choice. And that is some fascinating, interesting, peculiar thing to learn about how the brain works. And, uh, will be the subject of further study down the line. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that I talked about, sources to all of the information that I explained at youarenotsosmart.com, along with information about things like Boing Boing, Matt Novak, James Burke, and all the rest. All the previous episodes are available at iTunes and SoundCloud, and there are links to all that stuff at youarenotsosmart.com, along with information about merchandise, books, and other things that are going on in the You Are Not So Smart universe. Uh, the intro music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace, and all the music beds are by Drew Garraway.